Our, well, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 2 Samuel 14, verses 1 to 33. We find ourselves, if you're here with us for the first time or not here very often, we find ourselves now at Christ the King, nearing the end of what will be, in the end, a year-long series in the books of First and Second Samuel. But here we are in the last major narrative section of 2 Samuel. And in the big picture, of course, 2 Samuel in particular is the story of King David. The story of the one to whom the promise was given that his kingdom would last forever. Only if you've been with us The biggest thing you know recently about David is that in the wake of that astonishing promise, David fell. David fell into the sin of adultery and murder in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And though he repented and was forgiven his sin, the judgment of the Lord against David's sin was thunderous. Nathan spoke the prophecy beginning in chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 12 and verse 10. Now, therefore, Nathan declared, the sword shall never depart from your house, David. Continuing in verse 11 of chapter 12, Nathan went on, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And if you were here last week for chapter 13, you know the depths of the evil we began to encounter in David's house. The violation of Tamar, David's daughter, by her half-brother Amnon that led to Amnon's murder at the hands of Absalom's men. Amnon had been the eldest son of David, the first in the line of succession to the throne. Absalom was the second in line. But now, of course, Absalom is first. And crucially, as we saw last week, David himself was part of the reason that things had gone this way because David had done nothing. In response to Amnon's wickedness, you recall the text said in chapter 12, verse 21, only this, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And whatever was right about David's anger, and it was right that David was angry, It was his failure to bring justice against Amnon that left open the possibility for Absalom to act. And Absalom, we're just beginning to understand, was not the person you wanted filling that void. And I think that this is an important detail to understand. Absalom's disposal of Amnon that we talked about last week was a methodically planned, long-calculated act of carefully nursed hatred. Verse 22 of chapter 12 made it very clear that Absalom hated Amnon. So this is a significant point for me to make as we work our way towards chapter 14. It was murder Absalom carried out. Not justice. 
David's failure to execute justice against Amnon did not excuse Absalom's murderous plot, which is why I think Absalom fled. So if you have your Bible there, look back at last week's chapter, chapter 13. This is where we were at the end of it. Look there at 13, verse 37. It says, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. That means he's now outside of David's territory. And watch this. It says, David mourned for his son. But the son in view there is Amnon, not Absalom. David mourned for Amnon, his firstborn. The son he had refused to discipline. The son who was now dead by Absalom's hand. David mourned for him day after day, the text says. Or literally... It says in Hebrew, all the days. Meaning that David mourned for Amnon for the rest of his life. David was caught up in his mourning over Amnon. That's the sense that you get there. And so I think Absalom knew David would have nothing to do with him now. So verse 38 Chapter 13, so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And then we get to verse 39 of chapter 13, which I did not discuss at all last week, but I'm going to dwell on now for a while because unless we rightly understand chapter 13, verse 39 the whole plot line of chapter 14 just doesn't make much sense. Maybe, I don't know if you felt it, before the first service, my wife Emily was reading and she said to me before the service, I don't know what this chapter is about. And before this service, Eric stood there at the prayer meeting and said, I don't understand this chapter. So we have our work cut out for us, okay? This, this chapter, 2 Samuel 14, is, I think, actually one of the hardest chapters to interpret in all of 2 Samuel. It seems like it isn't, but it is. Watch. <laughs> we'll get there in the end, but I'm going to get a bit technical, and we're starting in verse 39 of chapter 13. You wouldn't know it, but chapter 13, verse 39 in the Hebrew is very difficult. You see how the ESV handles it? which is, in fact, how most English versions go with this. The ESV suggests that David came through his grief for Amnon, that he came to terms with Amnon's death, if you will, and that then he began to miss Absalom, right? I mean, that's the sense I get. Look at it. The ESV says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. But, I mean, that even sounds awkward to me in English, doesn't it? Something just feels something just feels off about that to me. And I grant you this is not a Hebrew seminar. I'm not going to explain to you the details of how I get to what I'm about to suggest to you here. You have to just take my word for it that there are at least five significant linguistic challenges that one has to make decisions about in order to translate just verse 39. It's not that every verse in the Bible is like that, but this one happens to be. 
And let me say it again, because I must say it, the ESV could have it right. It is a possible way to translate the verse, but it's not the way I think is best, and it doesn't help me in understanding chapter 14 from how I see it. I don't think that the Hebrew indicates that David was longing for Absalom. I think David was furious with Absalom. Now, you remember that David had been furious at what Amnon had done to Tamar too, and he took no action against Amnon, right? And David had been worried about Absalom's request to send Amnon to his feast at the sheep shearing festival, but David had been unable to refuse him. And now Absalom had killed Amnon, and Absalom had fled, and David mourned for his son Amnon literally all the days, the Hebrew says. And what were his feelings towards Absalom? Well, I think verse 39 maybe ought to be translated something like this. Here's verse 39 in the K. Ganser version, which would read, and this, now if you're looking at verse 39 in the ESV, you see the spirit, the spirit of the king there. There's no word in the Hebrew that is there to translate spirit. They, they add that in in order to make sense of it in one way. So I'm not going to use that. I'm just going to translate, and this, and by this, I'm just referring to the circumstances of verses 37 and 38 we just discussed. David is mourning over Amnon. Absalom has gone off to a place outside of his territory. And this, just listen to me say what I think the verse says, held the king back from marching out against Absalom, But David mourned over Amnon because he was dead. And this held the king back from marching out against Absalom, but David mourned over Amnon because he was dead, which I know sounds like basically the opposite of what the ESV says because it is, in fact, the opposite of what the ESV says. And I don't like to do that. But the literature I've read, the commentaries I've worked with, the Hebrew that I can understand suggests to me that something else may be going on here than what the ESV says. And you're just going to have to trust me that that interpretation of verse 39 is possible. Again, what the ESV says is possible too. And I rarely reinterpret a verse like this. But in this case, I think it's right. And it matters. Because if that's right, then the point isn't that David was longing for Absalom. The point is David was furious with Absalom. But then once again, David doesn't take action. Why? Well, because he's caught up in mourning over Amnon and because Absalom had taken himself to a place where it would have been diplomatically challenging, to say the least, for David to do anything to him. You see? So then you come to to chapter 14, verse 1, And you still have a big translational decision to make if you're trying to translate this verse. Because in chapter 14, verse 1, the ESV has, in keeping with how they translated the last verse of 13, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. 
which sounds like it would contradict what I just said about the last verse of 13, but here's the deal. Once again, there's nothing in the Hebrew that corresponds to the words went out in the ESV. All you have is the king's heart was, and then you have a choice to translate the next word in Hebrew either as on or against. The king's heart was on Absalom, which is the direction the ESV goes, and then they add that other language to make clear what they're saying. Or the king's heart was against Absalom. Same word, but both are perfectly legitimate ways to translate that preposition and therefore that sentence. The only way you know which is right is by the context. And in fact, the very same word that the ESV renders with the words went out to in verse 1 there, that same Hebrew word is translated as against two other times in chapter 14. It's there in verse 7. It's there in verse 13. You look at those two verses and you find the word against in it. 7 and 13. It's the same Hebrew word. So what I think is that verse 1 should read, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart was against Absalom. (laughs) And all that effort to get to that point may seem like not anything you were interested in knowing when you came to church this morning. But I suggest to you that it is only now that we're ready to make some kind of sense out of chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. If David was longing for Absalom, then why go through this whole scheme if you're Joab? Why get a woman from Tekoa to come? Why coach her on what to say to David in order to manipulate David into rendering a verdict concerning Absalom? And if David was longing for Absalom, then here's the bigger question, then why once Absalom is back does David refuse to see him for two years? Look at verse 23 of our passage. Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And then verse 28 says, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem, two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And if David was longing for Absalom, then why, when in verse 33, at the very end of the passage, Absalom is finally summoned into David's presence, why is the narrative so abrupt that it actually feels cold? Can you feel it? There was no weeping after what was years of estrangement. There were no words exchanged, or at least none that are recorded, which suggests that if anything was said, it was just mere formalities. There wasn't even any affection displayed. And I'll show you that a little more later. But there's no reason to take that final kiss as anything but a sign of royal favor. We'll come back to that. David's name isn't even used. Did you pick up on that? It's just the king. Absalom feigns obeisance. Just look at what happens in chapter 15. Just read the... Subject headline. 
the king kissed him. And that's the end of the chapter. (laughs) There's nothing fatherly about it. I don't think David was longing for Absalom. David was against Absalom. Which, from Joab's perspective, is the whole reason something had to be done. Now, just hang in there. We've got to now move through the narrative to get up to the point I just made about what happens at the end. Do you remember Joab? Joab is in this text called the son of Zeruiah. In order to remind us that he's David's nephew, Zeruiah is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 2, verse 16. This is David's nephew, but we've met him before several times. Joab is the commander of David's army. Back in chapters 2 and 3, in fact, he murdered Abner, but David had kept him around. And the impression that we get overall is that Joab has very few moral qualms, it seems, but that Joab was loyal, so to speak, to David. Or at least Joab was loyal to what he thinks is right for David's kingdom. Clearly, Joab remains in good standing with the king here. And here we are in this complete mess of David's kingdom coming into chapter 14. And what does Joab figure he needs to do? I think he figures David's ongoing antagonism toward Absalom is a problem. Right? Absalom was the heir to the throne now. His banishment from the kingdom would certainly cause problems when the succession became an issue. And as we'll see later on, Absalom was popular. And Joab's not wrong. A public rift between the king and this son could well be dangerous for David and for the security of David's throne. So I think it's with all of this in mind that Joab devises a way to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem to secure the heir to the throne and try to bring harmony to David's kingdom. Or in other words, listen, Joab was supremely confident that he knew what needed to be done here. And so you get this long section then from verses 2 all the way to 20 in our chapter that just spin out this incredible, with incredible detail, this conversation that ensues between the wise woman from Tekoa and David. And in fact, this is the longest and most complex conversation in the books of Samuel. Let me just play the highlight reel. Joab put the words in her mouth, it says, in verse 3. Right? Obviously, she was clever with words herself. But being from Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, it's the first time in the Bible Tekoa is mentioned. David didn't know her. That's important because she's pretending to be someone she isn't. Now, Joab undoubtedly got this woman from Tekoa access to David. And the story that he gave her was a very carefully crafted one, right? She's to play this widow who has two sons who get in a fight and one of them strikes the other and kills him. And her clan then wants to execute the guilty brother in order to get the inheritance. Leaving, verse 7, concludes, to her dead husband, neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And, And you can see that there are elements in parallel here with Amnon and Absalom. 
But frankly, it's not overly obvious. And that's the point. Because in the woman's tale, the killing was accidental. Whereas Absalom's was a cunning murder plot. Right? And it's not clear that anyone wanted Absalom killed. We don't know that. Because of Amnon's death, as the family wanted the woman's son killed in her pretend story. But it's generally parallel, is the point. So it works as a setup. And then David gives a vague promise in response in verse 8, saying, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. But that's not good enough for what Joab wants. So the woman goes on, trying to extract a specific verdict from David, which only finally comes in verse 11. As the woman asks the king to swear by the name of the Lord that my son be not destroyed. And David says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. David then was fully committed. And it's then that we get to what the woman really came to say in verses 12 and following. Look at verse 13. And the woman said... Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Of course, that's Absalom. And remember, this is what makes this a hard chapter in a way. This is Joab's perspective that we're getting here, right? The point is that David's heart being against Absalom, if my understanding of verse 1 is right, is actually, as Joab sees it, David being against the people of God. You see? This is Joab arguing, David, your continued antagonism towards Absalom is harming all of Israel. God's people. And once again, Joab's not necessarily wrong. He can see the threat that's posed if the problem of Absalom isn't resolved somehow. But watch where this goes. The woman then begins to base her appeal on a slippery view of compassion. Verse 14, we all must die, she says. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. All of which sort of sounds good, right? But actually it's slippery. The banished one remaining an outcast language sort of makes you think of David earlier in the Samuel story. Right? So partly it's a personal appeal. But there's a fault in it. Because God does sometimes take away life. I thought in this moment of Hannah's prayer, way back, if you can go back that far, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah prays, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yes, God often is merciful, 
But the point here is that the woman's argument ignores the need for justice as she appeals directly to David's well-established inclination not to act against his sons, no matter what his feelings of anger might be. Or in other words, Joab knew exactly where David's weaknesses were. One commentator puts it this way, the woman of Tekoa's parable was designed to rouse David's feelings as against his conscience, to appeal to God's mercy in a case that requires his justice is not wisdom, but sentimentality. So you see, the bait was well cast. Would David take it? Maybe all that's needed is just a little subservience, a little flattery, perhaps. That might do the trick. Verse 17. And your servant thought, the woman goes on, verse 17, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. And I mean, which, come on, can you just watch the, it just drips off the page in irony, doesn't it? The narrator's doing this. I mean, given what we've seen of David recently, that statement couldn't be farther from the truth. But the woman had given a brilliant, manipulative speech, and the job was done. And in the end, David realized that it had been Joab all along. I think maybe Joab had raised the matter of Absalom with David several times over the past three years. David, I think, could recognize Joab's position and what the woman had finally lured him into. So verse 20 of our chapter says it all. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this, she says, to change the course. And it worked. Verse 21, then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, go bring back the young man, Absalom. It was exactly what Joab wanted. His scheme had worked, hadn't it? Well, he thought so. David had been tricked into rendering this verdict, but things hadn't shifted as much as Joab had hoped. Let him dwell apart in his own house, David said of his son. He is not to come into my presence. That was not what Joab wanted to have happen. Joab may have turned things around, but then the king had turned them around again. And I don't know exactly what to make of David's refusal to see Absalom here, but my money is on the view that David's scheme now was designed to avoid the issue of what to do about his son. Which simply fits the pattern of what we've been seeing in David. David no longer acts. He's acted upon. Have you noticed this? He reacts rather than rules. He consents. He appears decisive in his decision to keep Absalom out of his presence, only in the end to cave in when Joab finally does come to him about it and permit it again. Joab's scheme, then, is frustrated. 
And Joab knows it. Now listen, there's no point for Joab now in responding to Absalom's requests to be taken to his father. Look at verse 29. This is two years later Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Absalom knows what he has to do. He could see the reality now for what it is. David isn't going to ever do anything to him. Just as David never did anything to Amnon. And Absalom has plans. I mean, look at Joab had his scheme. Then David had his scheme of, a scheme of just avoiding it. Now it's Absalom's turn. Absalom knew the one man who could get through to his father was Joab. The problem was Joab's not about to side with Absalom here against the king now. He gets now the degree of David's antagonism towards his son. He refuses Absalom's summons. And so Absalom does what he has to to get his way. Verse 30, then Absalom said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. Which worked. Joab does what Absalom asks this time. And just look at the end of verse 32. Look at Absalom's conclusion. He says to Joab, Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And now, here's my read of where things are at as we come to the end of 2 Samuel 14, just about to move forward into four chapters that will be dominated by Absalom. You ready? Is Absalom guilty? Yes. Does Absalom know he's guilty? I think yes. Does David know Absalom is guilty? Yes. Is David going to do anything about it? No. And Absalom knows it. David had allowed Absalom to return to Jerusalem without retribution, and for two years he'd managed to just entirely avoid him. So this is Absalom's challenge to David, which he knows he'll win. Receive me or execute me. And David receives him. The king kissed Absalom. And brothers and sisters, I'm sorry at how difficult this whole chapter is to put together, but I hope that this makes sense, that if if I'm reading this whole complicated chapter correctly, we're not supposed to cheer at the end of verse 33 there. This isn't the prodigal son returning in repentance. This isn't the loving kiss of a father who runs to receive his son back home. Our hearts are supposed to sink at the conclusion of verse 33. Because just just glance ahead at chapter 15, verse 5. Just have a look at that verse. Because just as Absalom had bowed down to David and David kissed him, look at this, the people are about to bow down to Absalom and he would kiss them. 
This is just the royal favor. This is a royal action. This isn't a fatherly kiss. Chapter 15, verse 6 says, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. David received him. And where we're going, our narrator has already signaled is coming, right? I mean, just why do you think? Did you chuckle at any of this? Why do you think verses 25 to 27 of our chapter are even there? Look at verse 25. Why insert these verses here? Verse 25. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I mean, this is Mr. Israel, right? What's the point? Who does that remind you of, hearer of Samuel? Well, it reminds us of Saul, right? Remember 1 Samuel 9, verse 2? The narrator wrote, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than Saul. Our author said so many months ago. Only now it's worse. Because Absalom's not about to hide his ambition for the throne. And because Absalom evidently delighted in his beauty. I mean, 200 shekels is an extraordinary weight for hair, but more importantly, what sort of person was Absalom that he weighed his hair? (laughs) I mean, you don't have to wait long to find out. And friends, what are we supposed to make of all this? I mean... I think chapter 14 is the hardest, one of the hardest things to interpret in the second Sam. What are we supposed, it's hard enough to sort out what's going on in this chapter, let alone what we're supposed to glean from it, exactly. But I think there are some things. And I think if you can just bear with me for a couple more minutes, I'll just talk about that and we'll be done. I think that first of all, there are some things we can say on a pretty obvious level, if we really understand the narrative, Perhaps you know some Joabs in your life. Or maybe you are one. Confident that you can see what needs to be done for the kingdom. Right? Maybe willing even to manipulate others sometimes to make that happen. Maybe that's not you, but maybe you know others who are like that. This stuff goes on in the church. It's possible... Listen to this. It's possible to have all the signs of wisdom, plans, strategies, accomplishments, and be utterly devoid of it. Or perhaps you know some Davids in your life. Or maybe you are one. Angered by wrongdoing, but too weakened by sin or by a faulty understanding of God's love or God's mercy to actually do anything about it. Taking stands that you then just later quietly back away from, hoping that if you ignore hard issues, things will just be okay in the end. I don't need to tell you you can find that in the church, do I? Or perhaps you know some Absaloms in your life. Or maybe you are one. 
not, I trust, that you've ordered murder, probably, but I'm talking about, at this point, the preoccupation with pretty people. The Absalom trap, the tragic tendency to be captivated by the surface, by the glittering appearances, when God sees not the surface but the heart. All that's said of Absalom is that he was a very handsome man and he had a very fine head of hair, which is going to be a problem for him later, and he had a very fine family. It's style over substance, it's cosmetics over content, and let's not even start on how that plague can so easily overtake the church. Or our lives, or our relationships, right? So I think all of those things are somewhat obvious takeaways from 2 Samuel 14, if we see the narrative properly. But as we close, let me reflect finally on this chapter in this way. You'll note that for all the scheming in chapter 14, the situation in David's kingdom hasn't improved at all. In fact, by the end of this chapter, things are worse off than they were at the start. And I think, in a way, that is what becomes the point of the whole thing. Four chapters of 2 Samuel now, from chapters 11 to chapter 14, have taken us through what is roughly 10 years or so. At the end of chapter 14, it had been two years since Absalom had been brought back to Jerusalem, five years since he'd killed Amnon, seven years since Amnon had raped Tamar, and let's say it's about 10 years then since David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. We don't actually know exactly how long is between chapters 12 and 13, but it can't have been too much more than that. The point is that for some 10 years, human sin had embroiled David's family and David's kingdom, which is God's kingdom, in more trouble than they had ever faced from any external enemies. Right? And every effort to make things better only makes them worse. Joab does what he thinks he needs to do to try to fix things. David figures he can just compromise and avoid the problems. Absalom's ready to make his moves. And in the end, the way is prepared for the near destruction of David's kingdom. Which, once more, is exactly what the Lord promised. It's not quite as obvious as it was in chapter 13 from last week, but that's what this is. It's the outworking of the judgment of the Lord. The return of Absalom in chapter 14 prepares us for his rebellion in chapter 15 and his role in things to come. The Lord's judgment against David wasn't over. There was more, if you remember it, that Nathan said would happen to David. And it's horrible, it's horrific things. And you know who would do them? It's Absalom. The horror is that it'll be David's own son who carries out the Lord's judgment against him. And so the whole of chapter 14, together with 13, but now Joab's scheming and David's weakness and Absalom's posturing, the whole thing just functions to bring about the punishment the Lord had announced. So then, just as we ended last week, where are we to go to find the grace of God in this mess? Well, sadly, 
I can't show it to you in 2 Samuel 14. It's not. It's, it's not in the unraveling of David's kingdom. It's not even, save for some good moments, in the long downward spiral of the history of Israel that's coming that's going to end in exile. It goes way beyond all that. It goes to the fulfillment of that unbelievably gracious promise that God made to establish David's kingdom of all things forever. I warned you when we started this series that by the end of it, you wouldn't be too impressed with David. Because the point is it will take one far greater than David. Not not to mention Joab or Absalom to sort out the mess of human sin. That's what Jesus Christ has done. For in him, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what it'll take. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.